Welcome to the Tales of Mythic Adventure podcast, coming to you from distant shores with your hosts, Jeff and Mob. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Tales of Mythic Adventure. I'm Jeff Richard. And I'm Michael O'Brien, also known as Mob. And somewhere in our virtual studio is producer Rob. Say hi, Rob. Hello, everybody. And Jeff... I'm really excited because we also have someone else in our, our virtual studio today, and that's a special guest. Yes, today's special guest is here in the Berlin virtual studio, Dr. Christina Reich, who is, yeah, yeah, she's an archaeologist and she, she's got a fancy title and so forth, but more importantly, she's a member of my gaming group, the, uh, the, the house... Moon Design, HeroQuest Glorantha campaign. So so she's a doctor, an archaeologist, and a gamer. In, in that Say order? Hi, hi, everybody. Good morning. It's, it is morning, isn't it, over there? We, because this is an international post, uh, podcast, we're always getting our heads around where we are. I believe it's morning there, Christina? Yes, it is. Bit rainy though. Oh, okay. Well, here in uh, Melbourne, Australia, it's also a bit rainy, so we've got a bit of a convergence. Now, Christina, you're you're in Jeff's gaming group. Right. That must be a, a that must be an interesting experience because you're getting things from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Yeah, sure. You're getting. Uh, it's always um, um, interesting. Interesting. I think another yeah. very interesting element, and, and I know this because once when I was uh, in Berlin, I got to play in a game too. Jeff, your gaming group is a little bit atypical for a gaming group, isn't it? In terms of its uh, its makeup, shall we say? It is. It's a majority women gaming group. Hmm. It actually sure? is. Yeah, yeah, it's actually. Not yeah. 50-50? Uh, the Players are definitely in the majority. If you throw me in on most sessions, it gets to be 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> which which is a, uh, results in some very different plot lines. Yes, I believe uh, your, your campaign is, is currently set in Esrolia, which, of course, is a matriarchy. Yes. Yes. So that, that must it, add some interesting dimensions to things. You know, I think that that's actually the least of the uh, <laughs> interesting storylines. It's the, the fact that it's ruled by queens, that's, that's just a minor little... <laughs> it's a background detail. <laughs> it doesn't feel so much different, actually. <laughs> no, we have... Uh, yeah, between... Uh, well, we one of the players is a queen. Most of the rest of the players are members of her household or important priests. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, the, the fact that it's a matriarchy doesn't really make that big of a difference at all in terms of the storylines. the 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 bigger bit is there is uh, there's there's a lot more pregnancy in this game than, than any I've ever seen. <laughs> But that's because of the honor priestess. <laughs> that yeah, would, that would probably do it. very seriously. <laughs> so, Christina, as a as an archaeologist, you're bringing a, an interesting perspective to gaming because Glorantha draws from uh, draws from archaeology and it draws from history and it draws from mythology and and tries to to pull it all together. Can you tell us what's what 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 attracts you about gaming in the world of Glorantha coming from your own perspective as an archaeologist? I like it a lot because it's set in some sort of Bronze Age and Iron Age setting and not um, like most other models in sort of medieval times. So that's something different. And I like the whole mythology stuff. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's going back a little bit earlier, isn't it, than, say, uh, a lot of D&D and things, which is in sort of a, a medieval fair type uh, setting. Right, right. That's a point. And can you tell us a little bit about your own background as an archaeologist? What's, 
what's your particular area of uh, study and interest? Okay. Um, I've written my PhD about Bronze Age and the Carpathian Basin. Um, I try to so, define uh, just for, for those of us in the United States and, and Australia and in England, the Carpathian Basin is much of the lowlands of Romania. N- not exactly. So okay, we're starting okay. in Hungary and going down the Danube down to Bulgaria, so to say. So there's also a bit of Slovakia, so that region. So would that be described as, is that central Europe? So that was my first laugh, so to say. And And what did did you study in your PhD about this particular area? So there is a certain sort of ceramics. It's called encrusted ceramics. So there's Mm -hmm. very nicely, very much decorated ceramics. And these these vessels are um, in the graves. And that's more or less it. They don't give as much bronze items into the graves. Oh, but this um, is starting, okay. Christina, to sound very Indiana Jones because you're, you're looking in graves for treasure. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do personally, actually, um, because the graves that were excavated, were, that were done in the last century. And they came Oh, oh Christina, so you were looking at graves that were excavated by Indiana Jones. Because he was doing this last century, right? And now it's been stored away. Himself. <laughs> Maybe. So the, so the guy who excavated, he excavated himself more or less right through Hungary um, in the last century. And then he tried to sell to the museum, which paid most at that time. Uh-huh. So, um, and then the things got into the museum and weren't really looked at till the 60s or something like that. And um, so the special point with this material was that in Berlin you have the um, only closed finds, the only closed assemblages um, from grave units. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also finds in Hungary, for example, but nothing which is newly excavated. And so they made the starting point to um, just to define a whole cultural group. And, of course, you have to look not only at the ceramics, you have to look where they're distributed, you look at the burial customs, um, if there are certain um, settlement structures which are different than around, and then you try to define a whole culture. Mm. Now, these aren't the ceramic urns that you showed me at the Norris right. Museum. The right. ones that have the little, these aren't the ones that have the little faces on them, are they? These no, are the no, other, no, no, the other ones, which are have the neat, all beautiful patterns. Yeah, and, right. and, and, and what was done with them? Is it the ashes and bones were put in these, or were they just buried with yeah, as great Yeah, the biggest one mostly, the ashes were put in. Not every time. You have also ashes. Um, in maybe in a wooden vessel or in a cloth, um, and the vessels around. Mm-hmm. You have both. Or so, you have so one Christina, the these, these ashes, lots of vessels around. Are these ashes uh, ashes of bones from from burned bodies, or, or yeah, what sure. are they? Uh-huh. So when somebody dies, so so, so you know, Glorantha geeks. Um, you know, when you pull out your cult of Orlanth, and it talks about how um, the Orlanthi men are burnt so that their soul can go up into the uh, the heavens. Well, there's ashes and bones afterwards. And in a lot of cultures, you take those ashes and bones and you put them in a, a pot, right? Right. And then you bury the pot. Yeah, but you have also different possibilities. You can bury the pot or you put it outside the pot that is on, on a... or in a vessel that's organic, which isn't preserved, so everything neatly together or you can also throw it over a bigger part of space and put vessels around it that's so also you'd possible. scatter the ashes and you put right. grave goods around it yeah hmm. right and in other times where you have maybe um um skeleton not skeletons um um, inhumation burials beforehand and then change to creation cremations then sometimes you have a intermediate state where you throw off the ashes like you had the whole body 
Mm-hmm. So you'd scatter the ashes in what would have been roughly the size of right. the human body. Right. And in some cultures, for example, in the Lusatian culture in Bronze Age, so what we have here in Berlin, Brandenburg, Saxony, um, then you have also an urn with the ashes in, and sometimes they're sorted. So little um, bone parts, uh, little foot parts are in the lower part of the urn, and um, skull parts are in the upper part. Oh, so somebody goes in and they... they, they I didn't realize so, that. So they sort it out um, from the funeral pyre. Okay. So the... It's, it's not... You don't really have ashes in prehistory because the fires are not that hot as they are today in a... Um, uh-huh. If you made somebody. So you can see... or You can pick out little fragments of the bones. And they went to the funeral pyre and then they sorted it in the right order right into the urn sometimes it's not always because always depends when you're an archaeologist um, that you have modern excavated um, cemetery where you um, excavate very carefully if you have really old excavated um, cemetery or old excavated material then it's really hard to say or it's you have to um observe it beforehand so to say well you know indiana jones is none too careful is he in his movies when he no, picks things up actually not <laughs> not no, he's, at he's all. not really a good example so christina no. can you tell me what what are the names of the peoples that you were were studying from this period and how and what exact period was it in history so it was the Middle Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. And to give it names, it's always a bit hard because in the Middle Bronze Age, in that area, we don't have um, an illiterate society and we don't have any written sources about them. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what they call them themselves. Right. And um, so it's um, the name I've given for that group is the Seremne Group. Or there is a, um, also a group with um, southern Danubian encrusted pottery and northern Danubian encrusted pottery. So you draw um, sometimes names from a site or the mm-hmm. site name. Um, and if it's Danubian, does that mean, is that related to the river, the Danube? To the Danube. Mm-hmm. It's just these cultures are, are um, or they settled along the Danube. If you look um, at the map, um, and put in all um, sites where you found things, and it's like, um, like a, um, like a, like a necklace. Yeah, ne- necklace of pearls, one after another, just uh, um, along the Danube, and some along the other connected rivers. But it's a, a river-based culture, or it seems like a river-based culture in that time. We haven't found any boats or anything from there. No, unfortunately no. not. But um, whatever. I don't think they have so much underwater archaeology in the Danube region yet. But So were these, uh, were these people agricultural people? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I would suspect, but it's, it, yeah, it's not really, it's a bit hard to tell because, um, as I said, um, in the graves, you don't have the bronze items. So no, no ornaments, no weapons. Um, these you find um, in hard finds. Right. Um, so, so these and, people and did actually just, have, uh, have bronze items. They just, in their own uh, funeral practices, didn't tend to put them in their graves. Right, right. Only very, very seldom. Well, they're Sometimes very clever people because bronze was very expensive. Why bury it when you could keep using it? Yeah, sure. But on the other hand side, they put it in hordes. Um, so, in my opinion, they're very good arguments that most hordes, especially at that time, are offerings to the gods. Oh, okay. So, they gave lot of wealth to gods. So you don't have it in your own society anymore then. And how many items might you, how many bronze items might you have in one of these hordes? Oh, that depends. They're small ones where you have maybe up to 10, but they're also much, much bigger ones with lots of pendants and, I don't know, maybe 100, 200. 
Yeah, I, I, I remember you showed me that um, at the Neues Museum, the, uh, and I don't, you know, I think this is from a different culture. I think this was a hoard that was found relatively near Berlin. Mm-hmm. But it was hundreds of these identical bronze, um, not really ingot, uh, that, not completely finished axe heads. Yeah. Hundreds of them. Yeah, that was from Benevitz in Sachsen-Anhalt. But you can find this hoarding phenomenon um, in all over Europe, actually, especially in Bronze Age. And um, what was the question? Oh, we're just rambling. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ask you a question, Christina. And this is, a, this is a deep and meaningful one. So with your deep understanding of your, your, your field that you've been studying... Are there things that you think Glorantha does wrong or could do better? This is in the writing and uh, and putting together of the material to make yeah. it more uh, resonant. This is a very philosophical question, actually. And well, we're a highbrow program here, Christina. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but, but I don't think you can answer to that very clearly or precisely because um, actually even if we if we research a lot or want to know a lot we archaeologists try to reconstruct worlds and of course there are lots of missing bits and pieces we in can't fact, most in. of them are missing um, to be very honest um, if I could travel with a time machine I would love to go back to that area I did research about and to see if what I think happened really happened and if it was that way or if it was really, really different. So there's also the possibility that we're very, very wrong. Um, And with Gloantha, that is creating a world. And so... You're totally freed, so to say. And um, I wouldn't take the step to go back and to see, oh, what's wrong with Glorenta or in Glorenta, what, what came out totally otherwise. So, and Glorenta is a mixture of Bronze and Iron Age. And so, so from well, there's, starting there's, it's from a mixture have of all sorts of things, isn't it? Hmm? It's a mixture Again? of all sorts of things. Yeah, sure. And that's what makes the fun of it, so to say. And so you you could always go by and say, so, oh, no, somebody who has Bronze Age armor from the late Bronze Age, he can't possibly have an iron sword. Yeah, of course he couldn't if you look from an archaeological point of view. But um, because it's a um, fictitious world, of course he can. Uh, yes, absolutely. So if I'm going to pose you another, this is another curly one though, Christina. Is it a philosophical curly one or just a curly one? No, no, I think it's a cool one actually. So <laughs> let's say one of your southern Danubians or actually, no, I've got to, I've got to walk back one question. What culture in Glorantha do you think your southern or northern Danubians most closely resemble? Oh, hard question for me. Yeah, that's a I, tough one. I'm not so fit in the canonical knowledge <laughs> for Glorantha. She, 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 she knows Glorantha from exploring it, not from sitting around reading dusty <laughs> yeah, books about right. it. All right. Well, I'll, much like, I'll uh, move on to my next tricky question, yeah, then, which we'll is, if someone, if one of your southern or northern Danubians all of a sudden, and this is this is putting you in the perspective of an explorer, mysteriously yeah. found themselves transported to somewhere in Glorantha. <laughs> what key things do you think they would find comfortable and familiar and reassuring? And what things do you think they'd find confronting and challenging? <laughs> so, if I want to imagine that they were transported into um, a river-based culture, which is the culture with the... Um, with the ducks? Or yeah, with the... right, with the duck people. Um, so, I think they find the duck people themselves challenging. 
But I think everyone finds the, the ducks people challenging, actually, don't yeah, they? Yeah. <laughs> but maybe not the other, not so much the other stuff that they are fishing and they're living on the river, so to say. So that people from that town might be familiar with or from that area, actually. Mm-hmm. What so, about the um, idea that in Glorantha uh, you can actually get an... You can you can give your hoard up to the gods and actually the god might turn up and take it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but that's a nice thing, that he would maybe take up, uh, take it up, right, and then the hoard will vanish, so you won't find anything as an archaeologist afterwards. It would suck to be a Glorantan archaeologist, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it would be great to, to excavate in the rubble or something like that if there weren't so much trolls and other things around. Hazards that the hazards that most European uh, archaeologists don't have to concern themselves right, with today: right. trolls and trollkin. Yes, and uh, and also duck people as well. Um, no, there's not a lot of duck people in the uh, Danubian region. <laughs> not today. Oh, not, <laughs> not today. Not 3,000 years ago. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not so convinced on that. I'm sure there were duck people in the Danubian region. We just haven't found them yet. Yeah, but you should find some skeletons anyway. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about what I think is the most awesome Glaranthan artifacts from the real world. Yeah. And 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 Mob, you've seen this with the, you've seen both of these that I wanted to ask about. The oh, first is one, one of the, is one of them a very big hat? Yeah, but that's the second one. The <laughs> okay. first one is the Nabra Sky Disc. Oh, and and do you remember seeing the Nabra Sky Disc, Mob? Oh, I do indeed. Yes, <laughs> this was uh, this was also in the same museum as the big hat, wasn't it? No, no, <laughs> it's in Halle. No, but there was a reconstruction of it at the time. In the remember, they used to have the a photo. bigger. Yeah, they had the photo reconstruct. Uh, the explanation of what the neighbor's sky disc was used to be ah. in the the the. They used to have a bigger set of exhibits right around the. Uh, yeah, the hat. sure, sure, and it's gone now. <laughs> and and in this one, this was um, uh, a bronze. Disc with uh, um, uh, a couple of golden uh, crescents and a bunch of golden stars on it. That a fair? Oh, there it is. Wait, Christina is pulling it out. Out of her bag comes the neighbor sky disc. Oh wow! Gosh, she is like Indiana Jones. <laughs> she stole it. No, I haven't stole it. <laughs> well, um, that's the original can be seen in the. Uh, Nannes Museum in Halle today, so in Sachsen-Anhalt. So it's not that far from Berlin. Hold and, it up to the uh, microphone, Christina. And it's a uh, so it's a bronze disc, and it has um, one depiction of the sun or the full moon, a crescent, and actually two boats on it and a couple of stars and one or seven of them they form the star Pleiades yeah right the 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 Pleiades star constellation or star group it's not really a constellation yeah so it's the whole thing is um, sort of a sort of astronomical instrument so that you can use it to um, determine the solstices, I think, and other stuff. It's it's quite an amazing looking object, isn't it? Because yes, it's it's clearly not just something that's decorative. It, oh, it's decorative in its own way, also, but. Um, the most special thing is it was found in actually in 1999 and archaeologists get it to know a bit later <laughs> and it's a very funny story how they retrieved it because it came from an illegal excavation Ooh. and before that disc was known um, you always said okay that's middle the middle of Europe 
oh yeah, very rural area, they don't nothing about astronomy. And after that, it was quite clear, of course they knew, and they knew as much as the um, people in the Near East, for example, where it's very well document, documented that they did astronomy. And, and there were even uh, suggestions or suspicions at the time, weren't there, that this might have been some sort of forgery? Yeah, you always had that problem with extraordinary finds. It's always if something comes up and um, um, during the legal um, process, it, um, there was really a big thing, actually, because um, in that case, the illegal excavators uh, were sued. Yeah. And, um, and they were um, sentenced to... Um, to money sentences as well as... Um, so they were fined and they were put in jail. Right. Not yeah. all that. We put in jail, but they had to do community work or... Auf um, Bewährung? Community service. No. If you, if you, if you're sentenced to jail, but you don't have to for the... Probation. Next, yeah, right. So probation, yeah. Uh, suspended so, sentence. Suspended yeah. sentence. And so that... I think it was the first time that you have something like that in such a quality in German archaeology, at least, um, that they re- were really sentenced. And so the whole retrieving of the disc is a um, sort of crime story for itself. But, but one of the things that's interesting about this is, as you said, he, you know, what, what, what's the age of it? It's uh, over, is it 1200 BC? It's 1,500 B.C., so, 15, so more or less. About 1,500 B.C. in um, uh, Central Europe, mm-hmm. you had a, a, a tremendous amount of, of astronomical knowledge mm-hmm. uh, or astronomical knowledge. And it seems a safe thing after this, um, along with what's, you know, some of the Near Eastern finds and, and along with what, you know, Things like Stonehenge and some of the wood henges and so <laughs> forth, that every human culture spent a lot of time looking at the stars. Yeah, sure. And of course, you have to. And you have to have some sort of calendar um, and knowledge when to, to saw things and when to harvest, because otherwise, you won't survive. And so, for people who wanted to know, uh, who want to still know why there is an entire chapter just dedicated to stars and constellations in the Guide to Glorantha, that's why. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh huh. So the the sky disc has been now uh, it's it's je- it's accepted that it's it's real. It's not a forgery. And in yes, fact, I think it's been they made sure it was real beforehand. And it's been and it recognized. Go on, it was the single fine as well, because you had two swords coming with its um, axes and chisel, I think, and um, arm spirals as yeah, well. Yeah, you've got the bronze um, arm so, spirals. So the whole thing is also a hoard, and the whole disc was sort of buried in a stone chest. And I believe it has been uh, recognised as one of the most important archaeological finds of the 20th century. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing, and uh, I'm and sure, sort of Christina, thing. you're holding it up to the, uh, to the microphone, but I think we could also put it up on uh, the webpage too, couldn't we? So people oh, we have to put at it this. up on the website. Yeah. What, what, but, and it's the sort of thing you could certainly imagine a Gloranthan culture possessing things like that. Yeah, sure. Oh, absolutely. Which, which gets us to the second one, which is even more awesome <laughs> to look at than the the, the neighbor sky disc. Um, one of the things that Christina showed me, one of the first times that I went to um, what is now the collection of the Neues Museum, but at the time it was at Charlottenburg. At Schloss Charlottenburg. Yes, it's a part of the collection of the Museum of Pre and early history here in Berlin. Um, by, by the way, I'm just going to jump in here. Berlin has got awesome museums. Um, they even have a whole island full of museums, don't they? Yeah, it's not only a whole island. The whole thing um, is called Staatliche Museen zu Berlin, so the state museums of Berlin. 
And there are all sorts of um, art museums as well as uh, as cultural history museums. It's incredible. So we're all bound up in one. And so the ethnological um, museums are still in Dalem, so in a separate district of Berlin. They will move to the or near the museum's island, right, into the Humboldt Forum when the um, old um, Schloss will be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Oh, are they? At some point of time. Yep. Wow, that's cool. Okay. A- anyway, sorry, Jeff. Let's get back to the big hat. Oh, oh, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but anyway, so this was something that clearly has to exist in Glorantha. <laughs> this is, and I'll let Christina go into more detail, but... Um, it is about almost a meter high, isn't it? Oh, I don't know about hard, actually, but yes, yeah, it should be. Yeah, it's about yeah. a meter high gold hat, a wearable gold hat with a little rim. It looked like a little bowler hat. So imagine an old uh, uh, British banker wearing his bowler cap, <laughs> except it's made out of gold. Um, and on top of it is Gandalf's um, conical <laughs> wizard cap, also made out of gold. No, no, no felt for for this wizard, and it's completely covered in stars and moons and lines. And you look at it, and you just think, "Boy, whoever had this hat had the most awesome hat <laughs> in his kingdom." They they were basically Clearly, saying. I'm important because uh, when I put this hat on, I'm nine feet tall. Yeah, he'd be close to nine feet tall if he was six feet tall to begin with and he put his hat on. (laughs) That's right. He'd be nine foot tall. But what's really cool about it was Christina then explained that not only is this hat just awesome in its huge ginormousness, but all of those symbols actually have purpose. And that's what... So what was the purpose of all those symbols on the hat? So our old director, Professor Magin, he started um, counting all these symbols. And you have these symbols um, in um, different zones. And then he started calculating with this zone. So adding things or um, um, dividing stuff. And then you get numbers like 365, 30, 31... 28. So, numbers, you can connect with the calendar of the sun or the calendar of the moon. So, you can say that astronomical knowledge is coded on that hat. So, would you would you actually wear the hat while you're trying to do that? Or would that be somewhat impractical? Um, I don't think that the hat was really used for calculating. Um, Mengin suggested that that would be possible. He even suggested that maybe you could use your fingers to um, make the calculation easier. So he suggested maybe it worked like an abacus today. But I personally, I think um, it's more maybe for showing off. And for magic. you know the knowledge. And for sure, the knowledge shouldn't be... Or people shouldn't be able, not everybody should be able to read this knowledge. But it's, for sure it was kingly knowledge. So only the person who know, know, who wore the hat um, could use it. So I've seen uh, the, the hat in Berlin, which I think is instructively called the Berlin Gold Hat. But there, right. are, there are others, aren't there? This isn't just the only one. Yeah, there are two others from southern Germany. One uh, which was uh, found in so-called Schifferstadt. Um, the other in um, Etzelsdorf, which is um, part of Bavaria now. And um, the third one is from Aventon. That's eastern France. And somewhere in that vicinity the Berlin Golden Hat should have been found too. But we don't know exactly because it was bought from the art market. So were these all uh, from the same culture? Um, oof, mm, <laughs> hard to say. Um, so for the Southern German ones, very probable. bit 
complicated it gets with the France bit. Um, and with one exception, all known hats um, are single finds. Only the one from Schifferstadt was found with two um, X hats. Um, and it's not quite clear where they come from. There is an um, old engraving, don't know from when, the 80s or 19th century, which reports a golden hat um, from uh, somewhere from the Wessex culture. So, um, um, South um, West England. And this looks a bit different. This one looks really like a bowler hat with a little... Um, with a tiny... With a tiny little tip, tip on tip, it, yeah, right. But we know that like the top of a milk bottle. <laughs> yeah, it's right. so the other stuff is like a bowler hat, and um, and so maybe that's one of a predecessor, so to say. But we know it only from this little or, engraving. Or it could have been, you know, the the the, the magic guys there in Wessex one time saw a guy wearing the super awesome hat, and this is their best approximation of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure, maybe maybe it's more the other way around, that it came from Wessex down to southern Germany. Or and Western they decided Europe. to make a much so, more impressive um, hat. So, but um, I think the point is that I think um, it's a safe bet to say that the elites of that time all over Europe were connected uh -huh. So maybe not that very different. Like um, today, um, you look at the Adelshäuser, um, the royal families, um, who are always connected and come together for marriages, burials, and um, <clears throat> try to establish connections. And um, so, of course, they looked at one another to see, oh, what's cool, or what can I do um, to make give myself an outstanding appearance. And you have also in in the British Museum in London, you have this great golden cape. Oh, yes. Ooh. So it, and, and it's um, ornamented in a similar way. Like it's, it's really more hat. of a shoulder. It's a kind of a shoulder thing. It's not... Yeah, right. And it's not practical at all. Because I think if you have put it on, then you can't have your arms upheld very high. And couldn't you imagine, though, Glorantin, kings and queens or priests and priestesses wearing this sort of stuff? Yeah, sure. Totally. If they don't, if they don't, don't do things like did our Israelian queen. Yes, didn't you try to dress your Israelian queen <laughs> up in stuff like this so she couldn't get into any trouble? <laughs> She would refuse. <laughs> I'm sure. So but it's, way magical. it's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good idea. idea. <laughs> so, so that way you can keep your queen from getting you into trouble. Here, yeah, wear the magic hat. Right. You can't move with it, but... <laughs> but it's really powerful. very still. <laughs> I think one really impressive thing about these hats is even though they're huge, they actually are... I understand incredibly light because they're made of gold and yeah, it's very it's, thin. Um, um, Christina, it's a gold foil, actually, or it's a sheet, and it's almost as thin as paper. So they weigh, or ours weigh less than half a kilogram, yeah. and the others are not so heavy. So how did such, such uh, items, because they'd be very fragile, how, how yeah. did they survive? <laughs> Good question. Um, so we don't know for the Berlin Golden Hat, because as I said, it was um, bought from the art market and we don't know anything where it was found and what were the circumstances. Um, um, the Berlin Golden Hat is exceptionally well preserved. Um, so maybe it was also buried in some, some sort of way, maybe in a stone chest, maybe like similarly like the guy disc from Nebra um, for the golden hat from Edselsdorf. This was found during um, works in the wood and the worker who found it um, destroyed it more or less completely with his axe before he's seen, oh, that's gold Ooh. in the ground. And then it was 
was a very long process, I suppose, to reconstruct the whole thing. After he'd smashed it with his axe. Right. Not what you want to do when you find a priceless yeah, sure. old hat. <laughs> but it's always a problem if you have a single finds or hoard finds and they're find accidentally. You don't know by which accident they're so, found. So I guess they possibly might have been like crushed flat. So they've had to have right. been re-sort re of shaped into what they would be for the hat. Yeah, and you see it also if you go to Nuremberg, uh, where it's um, on display, you see um, the ornaments are not so, so um, coming not out that much. It looks like if you put um, um, aluminium foil together and you fold it. Yeah, you're right. You, uh, you, 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 fold, you, you folded it over and then yeah. you try to try unfold to, it. Yeah, right. And then the whole thing gets flat. It just doesn't look as good. You saw the good one. Uh, it was it was a it was a super impressive uh, super impressive hat. I could absolutely imagine uh, Gloranthans wearing that hat. I'm sure Yelmalians would love it. You'd have to duck your head as you walked inside the Sundome Temple, though. It'd be very embarrassing. I don't think you walk with that very much. Actually, no. it's you a sit in a throne and people carry you around right, on right. it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I, I think the Omalians would love to have such a hat, but I don't think they could afford it because no. they live out. They live out in in boom country. I, I I would imagine that much more in a place where well, you've got enough enough gold sitting around uh, for the rich people to be able to make a hat out of gold. You don't need so much gold actually for it. You you need somebody well, you who's need capable to do that in that very. Thin manner. Oh, true I think the, the, the most difficult thing to um, to hammer it out in that height. What I and what I love about the hat is not only is it a cool hat. I mean, uh, anyone wandering around wearing an, a, a, a one meter high hat, it's cool. Is the fact that it also has this uh, this calendar function on the hat as well. So that's. That's basically turning the hat into a magical item, isn't it? Yeah, sort of. And you can, or oh, one thing you can do with it is to predict the eclipse of the moon. Ooh. And if you're the only one knowing that this, um, you just calculated that, then you can, of course, say, okay, next, let's say Wednesday, moon will vanish. And then you know it's coming back, but the others maybe don't. And so you can. And let it reappear again. And that gives you um, really a spiritual power, I think. Yeah. Well, I agree. But I, I also think just having something that, you know, the vast majority of the people in your community have no idea what those symbols are or what they can. They, they might have an idea what it connects to, but they, yeah. they don't know the pattern. There might be some learned people that know that that's, hey, you know that's the that's the the super version of the calendar, right? Uh, and in our king here, he's a magical dude because not just because he can predict the eclipses, because he has the hat. Whoever has the hat is is clearly magically awesome because mm -hmm. he's nine feet tall, <laughs> and, there is and he's got a calendar on his head. There, there is a risk in wearing the biggest hat in the room, though, and this is going a bit later into history. There was um, a uh, assassination attempt that took place in the Church of Hagia Sophia in in Constantinople, and some Varangians had been uh, bribed to kill the emperor. Oh, really? Yes, <laughs> and they went in and they automatically went up to the guy in the biggest hat and started <laughs> hacking into him because clearly the guy wearing the biggest hat has got to be the emperor. And the poor guy, as he's lying on the floor bleeding to death, is saying, it's not me, it's him, it's him, to someone wearing a slightly less big hat. <laughs> So, so I got another Bronze Age question here because from time to time, Christina brings over these beautiful books that show off um, various Bronze Age 
finds and weapons and jewelry and so forth, which I then send off to artists like Ian Pospisil and so forth to say, put this stuff in it. What is, in just in terms of the aesthetics mm-hmm. of the various ancient cultures of the Iron and Bronze Age, which one do you think had the prettiest stuff? Which artist? No, which culture? Ooh. Um, yeah, I'm, actually, I like the Danubian stuff. So what you find in the Capacitan Basin, so from the early Bronze Age on, on to the late Bronze Age, I like a lot. But also um, mm, the, the nor- so-called Nordic Circle. So it's the area from Berlin northwards. So in Scandinavia, that's also very pretty. They have um, big, um, not necklaces, but um, like a color, which the is torques, the Yeah, it's similar like right. a tork, but um, and very big um, discs um, worn at the uh, the at the belt, and um, great arm rings and arm spirals. So I like that. And great um, fibulas, of course. So sort of brooches, and sometimes very big, but um, great pins also. So I like this stuff very much. But southern, southern Europe is also nice. So there you are. Go and look up uh, jewelry and and. Um, uh, the nifty uh, decorative artifacts of the Danubians, of the Nordic Circle, and of Southern Europe, because they they are the prettiest. Yeah, in my opinion. Oh, <laughs> no, come on, come on, come on. You're, you're Dr. Reich. <laughs> yeah, but, um, and unlike Dr. Science, Christina is a real doctor. She doesn't ha- just have a master's degree. <laughs> So, Christina, in the Guide to Glorantha, we've got some pretty amazing artwork. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look through all of it yet. I mean, it's such an enormous two-volume book, but I've certainly got some favourite uh, pictures in there. Do you do you have any that really uh, resonate and excite you? Mm. Wait, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull out the giant tomes. Yeah. The giant, we'll go for the, oh, this is just a lesser giant tome. Another lesser giant tome. There we are. This is volume one. Uh-huh. Hold it up to the microphone, Jeff. It's being held up to the microphone, and Christina's already seeing one of her favorites right Uh, now. What you have on the dust cover on the back side. It's also in the Dragon Pass section on page 169. Okay, so and again, this, we'll, we'll put this up on our, our webpage, but uh, yeah. anyone that's okay. got the guide so, can so, have a look. So it's a picture of the Feathered Horse Queen, and I think it resembles quite nicely what I know from um, Guthian. Scythian. 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 <laughs> okay, um, burials. So the, the um, sort of head... Which could be higher, actually. <laughs> so, Jan, Christina <laughs> thinks that your hats are too short. <laughs> Make your hats crazier hats. Well, if it's going by the Berlin hat, she needs a good another two feet on the top, doesn't she? <laughs> no, but with these excursions, um, um that's there from Iron Age, actually. But um, therefore, we have really good models. Um, where the organic material, so clothing and also hairdo and um, also hats or sometimes it's a combination of hairdo and hat or or hair ornamentation is quite well preserved. And they are really, really high, about, let's say, one meter, one meter fifty high hairdos. And they're really impressive. (laughs) And they're really... Was that actually their real hair, or were they were they wearing wigs? Good question, but I think at least for a part of them, it's really real hair. Wow! I don't know about um, 
ähm, Haarteile. Ähm, the, the hairpiece, the... Yeah, if they put hairpiece, they in between. So, and sometimes you have some sort of, or you have to have some sort of um, substructure well, where you can put the whole thing on. Aren't there those, the, the, I mean, the, this is thousands of years after the Scythians, but uh, if I recall in the Mongol, the Mongolian area in the Mongol yeah. Khanate, there were women with these huge elaborate hairdos. Well, there's plenty to choose from. That's that's all I can say. Uh, yep. There's a there's an interesting one I think on page thirty five and thirty six, which uh, has an Orlanthe. It's an it's an Orlanthe scene of a female warrior depositing a, a severed head. Yeah. With a very contemptuous look on her face. And I think there's some, some nice details in that pic. Who did that one, Jeff? That was Mike Perry, who's a fabulous ca Canadian artist. Uh-huh. I, I love, in particular, uh, in that scene, uh, the decoration on the back wall behind the seated figures. Yeah, that, that might be... I think that's Assyrian-inspired, or... At least from the Near East, right? Yeah, I think actually it's Hittite inspired. Oh, the, the reference yeah, pieces yeah, were from. Um, okay. But you get that also. There's a lot of um, archaic Greek um, that that very much is that style. I mean, before you yeah. start having that 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 it, there's um, a collection of shield bands that I mm -hmm. sent um, Mike on this. Mm -hmm. And what I was struck by on that one, and it was, I think, um, 6th or 7th century BC, uh, is, and it's in the Munich collection. They're, they're from the, the, there's these shield dec band decorations on the inside yeah. of the shield that okay. show um, Heracles and various other gods, ah, but okay. it's done in a very mm -hmm. Near Eastern style. Yeah, okay. Uh, and also in Cyprus, mm -hmm. some of the Greek art, on Cyprus yeah. looks much more Near Eastern than what we normally associate with. Yeah, sure, with. because um, um, you have the connections also yeah. to both lands. Uh, and and so I gave a bunch of these sorts of references because, uh, you know, this little local king yeah. had to hire somebody and probably hired somebody from, looking at this, probably hired somebody from the lunar provinces to paint mm -hmm. his wall. Yeah, because you know you hire you hire the artists who can do this. Yeah, sure. Well, he's trying to look civilized too, isn't he? And yeah. impressive. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, just, I'm, I'm conscious. <laughs> I'm conscious that time is getting away, and we have uh, two very important things we need to do before we wind up, Jeff. One oh, is, don't you want another picture? I do. I, I I could go on with pictures all day because the the book <laughs> just has so many of them. I will do one last one, and that is... Uh, well, I got one. You got, we, we got one. All right. You're going to bring yours up in a second, uh, uh, a second one, because I'm almost to the page right now. Uh-huh. This is one, mainly because I think she will... This one. This is the Menirian picture on page 344. <laughs> we'll, we'll again pop this up on the uh, and Meniria is the area just to the west of Israelia and yeah. so it has a lot of Israelian influences <laughs> so the folk in that picture look all, uh, it, some of them look quite a lot like people that would be comfortable in Christina's part, uh, character party and this is a this is a picture of uh, what's called white shirt day and what's the significance Jeff of uh, people I'm still looking at a different shirts. one altogether. I'm looking at the wrong one. 
the, the, this one here, which is right near this, this is the so-called um, uh, conversion of Talistar to the uh, uh, lunar religion. Basically, the, the, this lunar noble arranged a big festival to the lunar gods, and all the Olanthi who came and participated in it got fresh white shirts. Okay. Um, and by taking the fresh white shirts, uh, he proclaimed them to to have joined the uh, lunar religion. Clear. And of course, the lunar the local Orlanthi view this as proof of how fantastically stupid the lunar uh, <laughs> lunar empire is. That um, they gave them all shiny, fresh white shirts for and free food. Yeah. That's a great. Who who painted that picture, Jeff? What's the name of the artist? That was that's, that's Yan uh, Pospisil as well. Yan is mm-hmm. a fantastic artist from the Czech Republic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, what and I love about st- his stuff, Jeff, is um, he does fantastic work with color, doesn't he? He makes it very evocative that way. Oh yeah, I, and also just the amazing little details. Yep, that's right. I mean, there's just he's. He's one of the best. I mean, that is more correct. I think you even recognize that. Yeah, but that's a um, Iron Age. Day yeah, it's Hoshat. Yeah, right. Well, as we said, it's Iron yeah, and may, Bronze. Maybe also Celtic. That would work for Celtic um, daggers also. But do you, I think there's also some of those spiral head daggers in the or spiral hilt daggers in the um, Bronze Age section of the Neues Museum. Yeah, no, that's a sword. Swords with the, uh, we call that in German, antennenschwerter. So, yes, the antenna. So, um, antenna swords. So the antenna hilts. Yeah, but it's only yeah, and it's, it's not that long, and the sword, of course, it's much slimmer and longer. Oh, true. So, but it's that sort of hilt. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that, Mob. We're, and, and those of us, who, those who are listening here, Christina and I are now arguing about um, the 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 um, uh, proper classification for the antenna decoration on a uh, fictitious sword. So, oh, that could get ugly. With all the blue runes, it, it, I think um, he gets uh, makes a Celtic impression and the red hair also, some sort of Celtic impression anyway. So the whole figure here, oh, is... and the colourful clothing, and so you know, um, I'm going to have to say <laughs> that time is getting away. So I think we've got to move. We, we've got to move on. I think that uh, this is this is a topic we could come back to later uh, later episodes with just. Uh, some more discussion about the artwork that's in the guide, Jeff, because... It Absolutely. Would so you sure. would be lots of fun. <laughs> but I think we're moving, though, into the section where Mob asks the four questions. But before we do that, it's traditional for our producer, Rob, who's been very quietly sitting in the background today, to uh, jump in with um, a final curly question. Have you got one for us today, Rob? Look, I, I did have a final curly question, but it was, um, did predicting the solstice have practical uh, consequences or religious? And you've already asked that question, and it's both. But um, <laughs> I, I would like to make a couple of observations, and the reason I've been very quiet tonight is because I've been trying to work out what I want to do when I grow up. Do I want to be an underwater archaeologist or do I want to be an astronomical hat coder? And it, it's very difficult to work that out. And the other thing I'm thinking, I'm sorry, about the gold cape, it doesn't matter if it's practical as long as it's fabulous. Right. You and it is talk. fabulous. <laughs> it sounds absolutely fabulous. Okay, the four questions, Christina. This okay. is something we've been asking all of our guests. We even asked uh, producer Rob at one point, didn't we, Rob? And at some point, we're going to get round to playing those answers. I, I think that might be next season, Michael. Yeah, yeah, might have to be. <laughs> Christina, can you tell us and think about the campaign you're playing in with Jeff? Tell us one thing that you do better than the average gamer. Um, you mean as a character? 
Or as a player. Or as a player. As a it's player. up to you. Oh, as a character, it's easy. Yeah. I heal everybody. <laughs> Most of the times. <laughs> Christina, Christina is playing a Shalana Arroy priestess. Well, then you're doing exactly what you're meant to be doing. That's very commendable. Right. Right. Unlike the rest of the players who barely could heal. I don't think even would be inclined to heal each other half the time. Oh. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, Christina, tell me then, what's one thing you do worse than the average player? Um, oh, I don't know. <laughs> um sometimes maybe as a player I'm not as inventive or coming up with solutions but um, on the other hand side I have my moments <laughs> I don't think I don't think, I don't think solving things is necessarily uh, required for everybody in a gaming party yeah that's why we are party yeah. so What's one thing that everybody knows about you as a gamer? People who play with you, I guess you could say. What does everyone know about you? Oh. Yeah, everybody knows about my healing abilities and um, that I'm quite reliable, I think. And my character is not very... um, there's not so much um, do things that are really unexpected. Your Christina tends to play characters that, um, unlike her, her other party members, generally can be relied on <laughs> to do the right thing for the group. Right. Oh, well, you know, you know, every party needs at least one person like that because I can think of so many role playing campaigns I've played in that. Eventually, it ends in the player character bloodbath. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, Christina, final question: What's something that nobody knows about you as a gamer, or might be surprised to know? Oh. Hmm. Actually, I have no idea. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I've really stumped you there. <laughs> Maybe they'd be, uh, if they didn't know you, they might be shocked that you're an archaeologist. Yeah, maybe they're more shocked that I'm an underwater rugby player, but in our gaming group, everybody knows that anyway. So. I'm sorry, you're an, you're an underwater <laughs> rugby player? I am an underwater rugby player. You see, we didn't know that. I think that counts. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I'll, I'll go even further. That I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah, um, you should. <laughs> There's also and, and in Australia did... now, and I think in New Zealand too, um, groups forming now. Oh, and I can believe they play underwater rugby also. in New Zealand. That's 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 a given. I just want to see them do the haka underwater. And, yeah, and you me do, too. And you, <laughs> and you do underwater archaeology at the same time. No, I don't do underwater archaeology. I'm, I'm actually I'm diving, um, and I'm an archaeologist, but I haven't bo- combined both yet. I think because there's, there's, there's still time. Hmm? There's still time. Yeah, sure. But the thing is, if you're living in Germany, then um, the spots to do underwater archaeology are just things in lakes, which tend to be cold and dark, or the Northern Sea, or the uh, the Baltic Sea, which tend to be much colder. And also not you don't very want to be, much You don't want to be doing the ar- so, underwater archaeology looking for the Baltic Atlantis? Yeah, I'm not sure if there really is a Baltic Atlantis, but um, well, it would be nice to to watch it when somebody has already discovered it. But beforehand, it's just um, 
Mm, practical work as an archaeologist, if you're working in the field, is exhausting, to be honest. You have to get up very early. It's normally cold. It's often raining. And it's not so much fun if you do that for more than eight weeks, actually. I think I could say the same about underwater rugby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but in underwater rugby, at least I can see where I'm going. Very true. Because it's much more visibility and the water tends to be much warmer. So So, it's over in less than eight weeks. Yeah. (laughs) A single game doesn't last eight weeks. A single game, so only a bit more than half an hour. (laughs) So, So Christina, we're going to have to wind up now. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And I have learned so much. I. I went into this thinking I knew about the different topics we'd probably be covering, but it's always interesting to see where it goes, and I did not know it was going to go to underwater rugby at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think with that, um, thank you for listening to another episode of Tales of Mythic Adventure. If you want to, um, if you're listening to this prior to uh, EternalCon in 2015, EternalCon is the annual German convention, Christina will be doing two workshops uh, at EternalCon about archaeology, gaming, mythology, religion, all that sort of stuff. And not underwater rugby? That might come up. Not yet. But anyways, thank you all for listening. Tune in next time for Tales of Mythic Adventure. Tally-ho. Goodbye. And that concludes another tale of Mythic Adventure, coming to you via download at mythicadventure.com and on iTunes. This was a Rabbit Hat production in association with Moon Design Publications. No ducks were harmed in the production of this podcast, as far as you know.